I first started running about 15 years ago as a way to quit smoking. Back then, my running clothes were very Rocky Balboa, so sweatpants, sweatshirt. Anyone who goes hiking or trail running knows that it's a lot easier and a lot more fun when you're wearing the right gear. Jonji makes performance apparel that'll take you farther on your runs and hikes. They have this merino wool hoodie that I wore on multiple trail runs this weekend. It's soft, it's warm, and most importantly, it does not get stinky when you get stinky. Another reason to love Jonji is that they donate 2% of all sales towards clean water projects, raising nearly $1 million so far. Head to Jonji.com to find your new favorite trail wear, outdoors accessories, and essentials. And use the code OUTSIDE for 10% off at Jonji.com. That's J-A-N-J-I.com with the code OUTSIDE for 10% off. When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge Caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. I'm Justine Paradise. And I'm Felix Poon. Felix, you know that feeling when you learn that a thing that you've observed, that there's actually a word for it? Like you didn't know that there was a word for a particular phenomenon, but they, but it does have a name. Yeah, a word that comes to my mind is uh, I've been learning some Portuguese and one Portuguese word being saudade. I don't know that one. Which is kind of this nostalgia or longing for these old memories that's it's like both good and bad it's like bittersweet maybe is kind of like the best equivalent in english yeah it's an interesting one and i often feel you know when when i learn that someone else and, and may, many many people have described this phenomenon I'm, I'm observing it's like suddenly i get to experience it in a new way and i feel like recognized somehow and the way writer Elizabeth Rush puts this is that it's almost like something gets unlocked and the word is like a key. So as I started to spend a lot of time in coastal wetlands, I started to notice this really strange phenomenon that in every single wetlands ecosystem that I was visiting, many of the hardwood trees were dead. The word for the phenomenon Elizabeth is describing is rampike, R-A-M-P-I-K-E. A rampike is a standing dead tree, undone by natural forces, in this case, death by saltwater, as it rises. And you see them 
I promise you, go to a tidal wetland anywhere and you will see ram pikes. These standing dead trees inundated by saltwater are, to Elizabeth, a visual marker of climate change, a way to actually see it. But that's not all they are. There is a deeper way in which I want the ram pikes to function, which has to do with, I think, a big question that is at the heart of this book, which is sort of once you're vulnerable, what do you do with that sense of vulnerability? Rampikes are a starting image of Elizabeth's book, Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. And at a human level, it really circles around that question of do you stay or do you go? How do you stay in a place that's defined you, even as it's sort of changing irrevocably right beneath your feet? And how do you know when it's time to leave? Rising is the subject of today's episode and the latest Outside In book club pick. So, Justine, if I'm a listener and I haven't read this book, should I bail right now? (laughs) No, you do not need to have read the book to enjoy this episode. Okay, that's good. Yeah, and actually I think a lot of books about climate change can be kind of wonky or heavy on policy or on politics. Mm. But I want to say that Elizabeth's book is not that. A good friend of mine who's a journalist in Washington, D.C. was like, this is the first climate book I've also read that has zero quotes from politicians. Um, (laughs) That wasn't purposeful, but I looked back and was sort of proud of that. Many of the people Elizabeth talked to did not use terms like climate change or sea level rise. They still talked about sea level rise, but they talked about it in terms of like the soil and how it smells different now. Or the dolphins, sighted further inland than ever before, swimming up deepening tidal creeks. And how the last big flood wasn't gradual, but fast and sudden. Really intimate stories about what a person loses in a storm, about really specific objects and memories that are tied up in home places, and what they decide to do with the knowledge that Not only are they vulnerable, but that there's a shared vulnerability amongst them and usually their neighbors. But reporting on communities that are vulnerable to sea level rise, both human and wildlife, is a complex thing. I felt like if I was spending time in these communities and asking residents to share with me, that I had to make myself vulnerable too. So today on Outside In, a conversation with writer Elizabeth Rush on the people and species on the leading edge of sea level rise, and what it was like to report on that for her book, Rising. It's about rising sea levels, but it's also about rising into awareness and rising into power. Tidal marshes are places that, for a lot of people, are probably not top of mind. That was true for Elizabeth, at least. But eventually, the tidal marsh became central to her reporting. Here's Elizabeth, reading from Rising. To most, a wetland is just a mess of grass, the sulfuric scent of decomposition, miasmas, and mud. But I'm beginning to see them as divining rods signaling where there will be more water in the future. And even more importantly, that the future is, in many cases, already here. 
Why is the salt marsh or the tidal marsh so important to think about? Oh, they're important for a million reasons. I should also say that when I started writing this book, um, I quickly figured out that I was going to have to spend a lot of time in marshes. And my first response was like, snooze, who <laughs> likes a marsh? And the more I worked on it, the more excited I got about marshes because I started to recognize just what a dynamic ecosystem they are. Tidal marshes are dynamic, that is, constantly changing. I mean, it's right there in the name, they're tidal. And the roots of the grasses that grow there help protect the coast by cushioning the force of the waves, like a shock absorber. And plus, they're carbon sinks. Marsh grasses and their roots sequester carbon in the soil. So Felix, you know how when you read a book that you like and you get really excited about it, at least for me, there's often one specific factoid or story that I tell just everyone about in every conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I do that too. Um, what What's the part of rising that uh, that you're really excited about? Well, I guess excited might be the wrong word, but the thing that really blew my mind was with sea level rise, when more and more ocean water floods a tidal marsh for more and more time, in some cases the marsh literally rots. The underground roots begin to decompose, and the ground starts to collapse. The marsh even starts to smell different. A, quote, musky, almost strawberry scent of decomposition, as Elizabeth puts it. Some of the marsh grasses are going to be a little bit more adept to living with higher levels of saline. Others are less so. And so in places where you see marsh grasses that don't have that built-in adaptability, spending more time, more hours underwater every day, they rot. They they die and, and they, um, as marsh grasses rot, they release methane into the atmosphere, which is um, actually a more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. So not only is the marsh dying and the coast losing that protective buffer, but it's also losing its capacity for carbon storage. Yeah, it's like the function of the marsh flips. It used to be something that sequesters carbon, but now it's something that emits greenhouse gases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Elizabeth features eight different communities dealing with these changes. Most of them are coastal, which makes sense. Miami, Florida, Berkeley, California, Staten Island, New York. But there's one place she reports on that's a little surprising. There's one point in the story where you journey very far from the shore to the Cascades in Oregon. Um, this is a book about sea level rise. Uh, why are you in Oregon, in the mountains? I'm in the mountains at a writing residency to try to write this book, Rising, and even there, where I think I won't be immediately haunted by the impacts that rising sea levels are having on wetlands communities, and come to find out that many of the breeding birds who find their way to this mountain to make their babies get there by migrating through tidal wetlands. And so as the tidal wetlands disappear, fewer and fewer of these birds are making it. So, you know, it becomes clear that like when we talk about the impact of rising sea levels on coastal communities, the aftershocks of that reverberate all throughout the country, even, you know, 8,000 feet above sea level. 
Yeah, it's kind of like um, how Elizabeth discusses in in the book that like a lot of coastal areas, um, they're no longer getting resupplied with sediment because like we've dammed off uh, a lot of rivers and it's it, it kind of really illustrated for me that like a, a problem isn't just isolated in one place. It's like it's all interconnected, really. Yeah, like ecosystems are not closed containers at all. As Elizabeth was describing this experience in the forest in Oregon, I started to visualize these tidal marshes as almost all one ecosystem, all connected in the United States and the world. Like, let's say you or I were going on a road trip and we were looking for spots to refuel or to get snacks or go to the bathroom. Like, you look for a certain kind of place that exists all along your route that can help you do that. And I feel like if you're a migratory bird... That's what a tidal marsh is. <laughs> they're, they're little fueling pit stops for the birds. Yeah. Here's Elizabeth reading from Rising again. I think about the places these birds pass through on their way here, of the disintegrating cypress swamps the rufous hummingbirds fly from, of the willow groves that Swainson's thrushes have long sought out in San Francisco's South Bay, of the drowning bayous the ospreys pause in before crossing the gulf. The birds are all nomads, at home in movement. But what happens when points along their paths begin to disappear? What disorientation will settle upon all of us then? After a break, Outside In journeys with Elizabeth Rush from the mountains to the bayou. We'll be right back. Outside In is a member and listener-supported show. We rely on listeners to take the leap to donate to support the reporting, if you're able. It's quick and easy. Just go to our website, outsideinradio.org, and click Donate. And thank you so much. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise, here with Felix Poon. And let's talk about one of the communities where Elizabeth Rush spent time for her book, Rising, the Isle de Jean-Charles in Louisiana. Oh, the island. I First and foremost, I just want to say it's a really stunning place. It's about an hour and a half drive from New Orleans, first on these raised highways through the marsh. 
you like kind of cruise through at eye height, swamp oak and cypress. And then the highway drops down to sea level and it jags out onto open water. And then you hang a left and you're on the island and it's sort of this spine of land surrounded by open water. It's a single road. Out at the end is a marina that kind of like doubles as the local hangout place where everyone gathers and like boils crawdads and drinks beer. And then most of the homes out there kind of look like trailers up on like 20 foot high stilts. You can jump in your boat off the back in your backyard and just be out in the water. 50 years ago, all that was wetland. 50 years ago, the Isle de Jean Charles was 10 times bigger. Elizabeth said about half the swamp trees she saw around the island are now ramp hikes, standing dead. And for decades, the big gnarly question has been, how long can people keep living there? The folks who live out there tend to be members of the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw tribe, though the island isn't recognized as reservation land because of the intermarriage of folks. So it's easier to get sort of that tribal recognition if it were just Choctaw or if it were just Chittimacha. But all of these different tribes convened on this really vulnerable land about 200 years ago as each of them was fleeing similar kinds of but different moments of colonial violence. And they convene on this place in part because no one really wants this land. And In that sense, it acts as a kind of invisibility cloak. As the island has shrunk and shrunk in size, a lot of people have left. Those that have stayed are quite vulnerable to storms, especially hurricanes. Elizabeth got to know two people living on the island in particular, Chris Brunet and Edison Dardar. Both really love the island, and they've responded differently to the changes happening all around them especially the idea of collective relocation, also known as managed retreat. Since 2001, much of the tribe and their leader, Albert Nakin, they've been organizing to resettle together. Chris is choosing to participate in relocation. And Edison says, you know, I really want nothing to do with it. I remember him saying to me, you know, what am I going to do if you move me inland? I'm just going to like sit on my butt and watch TV and grow old fast. Edison is like in his 70s. He, you know, throws the cast net in his backyard every day. He gets shrimp out of the bayou. He lives out there and it is who he is. And he's, you know, and I don't think he's wrong to say that he would probably die sooner if he moved inland. Although he might die on the island in a storm, you never know. So, um, but he's making this choice to stay on the island. And Chris is making a choice to be part of the relocation. And I think the chapter tries to give equal space to both of them, because I think they're both really reasonable responses. The Isle de Jean Charles is one of those places which, kind of like certain coastal communities in Alaska or the Polynesian Islands, is experiencing climate change directly already. And so it's featured in a million documentaries. So people living in these communities, a lot of them have had a lot of encounters with journalists and media, And sometimes those encounters are not great. And this brings up another difference between Chris and Edison that, for me, 
you know, gets into this can of worms around how do you ethically report on a vulnerable community? As for Chris, Elizabeth witnesses him being pretty open to speaking to journalists. Yeah, like once while she's interviewing him, another group of reporters comes through to film him. And he's like, oh, I forgot about them. I think they're (laughs) from National Geographic. Yeah, like I forget where they're from, you know, these famous. (laughs) Yeah. But Edison, the first time she goes to his house... There's a handmade sign out front that says, quote, Island is not for sale. If you don't like the island, stay off. I think it has to do with a lot of different things. Um, Many journalists are working on really tight deadlines, and so they don't have a lot of time to commit to a place when they're doing their stories. And that's no fault of their own. That's just sort of like the 24-hour news cycle. And so they kind of like parachute into a community, gather up the stories and leave. And the longer I worked on sea level rise, the more it started to feel to me that that kind of reporting mimics a little bit of what's happening um, in the extractive industries that have gotten us into the climate crisis. It's sort of like, okay, you take out the ore And whatever wealth it can generate leaves the community and the community is left sort of hollowed out by that process of extraction. Like, I told you my story and like, what do I get from this deal? And I think that there's also a little bit of a false promise. Like, oh, if you speak with me, things are going to change fundamentally as a result of this conversation. And that's not necessarily true, right? Elizabeth eventually does develop a close relationship with Chris in particular. I get the impression that they're still pretty good friends. And Edison did end up speaking with Elizabeth, too. And so I really wanted to ask her, how did she gain that trust? And her main response was, Whenever I ask to go report a story, if I put together a budget for that reporting, I always ask for time. Time. Put me up in a, like, cheap... Airbnb, let me camp, let me have months to be in a community. The book actually took eight years to write, and in the case of the Isle de Jean Charles, Elizabeth took two extended research trips there. And another thing Elizabeth does is she opens every chapter with testimony, almost in essay form. Each one is authored by a resident of the places she's reporting on. Chris is one of them. Also, Elizabeth wrote the book in first person. She uses the word I a lot, which is maybe uncommon in straight-up journalism. And she shares a few details of her own life at times. A broken-off engagement, leaving behind an apartment and a life, and one possible future. I felt like if I was spending time in these communities and asking residents to share with me what is arguably like the most difficult knot at the center of their lives, um, asking for them to recall past traumas that I had to make myself vulnerable too. Like it had to be a conversation. It wasn't fair for it to just be me, you know, showing up with a microphone and being like, well, tell me about Hurricane Katrina. Like, yeah. What's the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Exactly. Like, That's a non-starter. And it's also a non-starter to go in there and be like, well, 
we've moved past 300 parts per million. And so this is what's happening in this community. Like, I also don't need to be an expert on my podium telling them, convincing them that climate change is real when they know, like, they know they're flooding worse and worse. So I think that, you know, it's in the book out of that necessity, out of that like human decency. And then it's also in there for a second reason, which is I think readers are a little bit voyeuristic. At least I'm a voyeuristic reader. <laughs> I love learning about, you know, what my favorite authors uh, have in their kitchen cabinets or everyday struggles or big struggles that ground their lives. That's such a real answer. Like, people are gossipy. We love, we're all voyeurs. I am. (laughs) Totally. Like, I tell my writing students that, and they kind of look at me like, oh, aren't we better than that? And I'm like, I mean, not really, but. Are we? (laughs) Our conversation with Elizabeth Rush continues after a break. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. This is Outside In. I'm Justine Paradise. And I'm Felix Poon. And we're going to pick it up here with a little non sequitur, because you need to know that a book about sea level rise can be funny. Can it? (laughs) (laughs) Well. Okay, that's true. (laughs) So this comes from a moment when Elizabeth is in this forest in the Cascades in Oregon, hanging out with a bunch of scientists who are studying bird migration and breeding. And Elizabeth was shadowing them as they tromped deep into the woods to record these bird calls. And it was a place where there was, you know, a lot of big old growth and dug firs and also a lot of like stumps, you know, signs that a century ago, the biggest trees were removed as part of that uptick in lumber and extraction that happened in the Pacific Northwest. So we're sitting there and an owl swoops in and just like perches on this branch really close by. And then another one comes in and joins it. Spotted owls are endangered species, and they're also the species that was used to create the injunction against the felling of old growth in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, The only reason why the environmentalists are using the owl is just to work on the emotions of the people. It's all the logs, it's the trees that they're after. And so in the world of, like, environmentalists, spotted owls are, like, a holy grail. And so the guy that I'm with, we're both like, I think those are spotted owls. Oh, my God. And, you know, we, like, silently sit there for an hour. And I feel like I'm having this, like, moment of interspecies communication. Like, I'm looking into its deep, black, obsidian eyes. And it's looking back at me. And I just feel so special. And later, back at headquarters, you know, I go to the guy who's the head of the spotted owl study, and I'm like, 
it was so amazing. They were so close. I can't believe it. And he looked at me and he's like, you want to know why they do that? And I was like, why? And he was like, oh, because they think that you're going to pull a bait mouse out of your backpack. (laughs) And my like, my, my dream is shattered in that moment. It just, it, it's become so accustomed to being observed by humans as part of these ongoing studies that are used to stop, you know, to maintain old growth that it knows that when we come around, it can expect a special snack. I felt like that was maybe less funny than it was sad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's both, really. It's like the sixth extinction, things are weird. Yeah. But again, there's this theme inside it. This theme of journalists and scientists gathering stories of vulnerability to support a larger narrative. And in this case, that story is the plight of the spotted owl, which was employed with some success, but it is still a little uncomfortable, right? There's something about, I think, as a scientist trying to objectively observe something, you're, you you think you're res- removed from it, but right. but you're actually not. You're, you're poking and prodding while you're observing, and, and that there's no way to kind of escape that that interconnection. Yeah, the the scientist tries to be sort of this objective eye. Right. But here we're seeing the species is changed by that process of being observed. Exactly. One thing about some species is there's a limit to how far they can migrate. Like if your habitat is a mountain, Eventually, you can't go any higher. So some species and communities are very limited in terms of their capacity to move, while others are innately more flexible. That brings us to the second grounding image of the book, the rhizome. Rhizomes are similar to roots in that they kind of uh, drill into the ground and hold and support and absorb nutrients for a lot of these tidal wetlands, um, marsh grass species. But where they differ from root systems is that they're also able to send out lateral shoots that then turn into new plants. And so as a, as a area becomes more frequently inundated, rhizomes are able to go in search of higher, drier land that might be more suitable. So they're really kind of this neat interconnected web that drives inland migration in marshes. So rhizomes become this metaphor for human communities that are doing the same thing. One of these communities is Oakwood Beach on Staten Island, one of the boroughs of New York. It's pretty suburban for New York, historically very Italian-American, with the reputation of being kind of an insular place. Elizabeth worked as a professor at the College of Staten Island for years, and she'd often ride her bike over to Oakwood Beach after teaching. It was a community that was very right-leaning, a little bit climate change-denying, working-class, and low-lying, and they were decimated by Hurricane Sandy. Imagine going in your house and everything in there has to be thrown out. You've, we've heard about the stories of bodies being pulled out. I myself have 
saw them pulling out some bodies as we were doing our relief efforts, and it's tough emotionally, but bottom line is that we're supposed to be here to help. And what surprised me was that in the wake of the storm, many residents started to band together and publicly ask that the state purchase and demolish their homes. They said they no longer felt safe living there. And the longer I spent dwelling in the stories rising up from Oakwood Beach, the more I started to suspect that there was something that, you know, these residents knew that the rest of us who are not quite so vulnerable to climate change did not. Um, Because I didn't understand how it was that they were asking for this really, what's considered like a really radical climate change adaptation strategy, managed retreat is what it's formally called. Yeah, I feel like I don't hear the language of managed retreat in everyday conversation. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a policy word for sure. Yeah, but it is definitely another example of people not using the words and terminology of climate change. Like they're recognizing and experiencing it firsthand, but like they're thinking of it more as like, I got to get out of here in like a way that feels good to me rather than like we're doing managed retreat. This kind of brings us back to this language thing that we started with, like this idea that if you are able to name something, it kind of allows you to experience it more deeply. But it's almost yeah. like the reverse here, where if Elizabeth had forced the issue and said, no, no, it like it definitely is climate change, it would be probably an example of language getting in the way of a human interaction. Yeah, it's like a lot of terms like climate change have cultural baggage that people can get really stuck on. And then your message just gets lost in it. Yeah, and, and maybe your relationship, too. And I think to figure out why they wanted to retreat, you kind of have to dig into the community's past and you start to see that, you know, a hundred years ago, it was all wetlands out there. And in more recent decades, you know, they they flooded frequently and they're often sort of at the bottom of the city's repair list or to-do list. I think there's a narrative around like, why would anyone ever choose to live in a place that is so vulnerable to flooding, you know? Right. And this is where more structural elements come in. Like, actually, a huge amount of the New York metropolitan area was once wetland. Mm -hmm. About 90% actually has been backfilled and built on. So, you know, wetland acts as a, quote, giant sponge, as a geologist Elizabeth spoke to put it. But now a lot of it's paved or, or houses are built on it or whatever. And this geologist also plotted it out for Staten Island and found that, quote, over half of the people who died in the storm were standing atop land that was once a tidal marsh. And he said a lot of these houses should just never have been built. So when Hurricane Sandy came around, they read the writing on the wall. They're like, everyone's going to get money before us. Like, we will be tasked with living in, you know, FEMA housing for years or in our homes with mold creeping up the walls and, uh, you know, parts of the roof pulled off. And they just didn't want that. And I think a major part of why this seemed to work so well is how truly bottom-up the organizing was. Like, the drive for the buyout was coming from the community from people living there. And so someone from within the community heard about the possibility of managed retreat, and he started to advocate for managed retreat, and he understood that this was 
a story, an idea that had to enter into discussion sort of in a horizontal way. So he organized these different buyout committees and they went door to door and started educating residents on what managed retreat might mean, that you would actually get pre-storm value for your home, that the land would be held in open space in perpetuity, that a developer wasn't going to come in and throw up a high-rise condo, which was surprisingly interesting to a lot of folks. They were like, oh no, if you're gonna if you're gonna put in luxury housing here, I will rot on this piece of land. I don't want to be part of whatever would sort of make me have to give up my community so that someone wealthier could end up living there. Absolutely not. And even though even though it might be really sad for them still, like you you might still be leaving behind a garden you started yeah. or a street where you grew up, like maybe your grandparents built the porch, whatever, all these intimate details that make your life, you, you're still having to leave that behind, even if that's what you want. Yeah, these people sound pretty empowered. They're like aware of the politics and the money that's involved here. And in the end, the organizing worked. The buyout program ended up adding up to almost $300 million, mostly on Long Island and Staten Island. Then the governor eventually agreed and purchased and demolished 600 homes on the eastern shore of Staten Island. And I think the thing that really, like, still jazzes me about the whole thing to this day is that the city offered a 5% bonus on closing if you stayed within the five boroughs. And so 80% of people who participated in the buyout still live on Staten Island. Like, they still see each other. They still go to the same grocers and butchers. Um, what's changed is their real immediate vulnerability to flooding. At one point, Elizabeth writes, quote, I am done dreaming the earth undrowned. It is no longer a useful skill, end quote. And I think part of the reason that the Staten Island example is so profound and for me feels kind of hopeful, and the reason the rhizome metaphor is so apt here is because here is this interconnected web of people They're moving together. And from the sound of it, these days, the community is in large part intact. It's not in the place it once existed, but the community still does exist. So it sort of shows the potential of movement in a way. Like, can we be more flexible and can we make room for this movement in a way that is fair to human beings and to non-humans as well? Yeah, I think it is a pretty apt metaphor. Yeah, maybe in some cases we can move. Um, in an organized, equitable way. Um, but sometimes maybe there are structural barriers to that. Like, for example, I wonder, like, would communities of color have been funded and supported in the same way that the Staten Island community was? There is some data that says that communities are being treated differently, but making direct comparisons, I think, probably has its limits. Yeah. But I will say I read this study which looked at the ability to organize as itself a quality of resilience. Like that sense of empowerment that you mentioned, that is informed by factors like the history of activism in your neighborhood, urban infrastructure, how close you are with your neighbors, like physically and socially close. All of that impacts a community's ability to adapt and move, you know, like rhizomes. To finish, let's go back to the beginning. Rising opens with two epigraphs. One is a quote from the Penobscot scholar John Bear Mitchell. He said, in part, 
quote, Within a single human existence, things are disappearing from the earth, never to be seen again. In Passamaquoddy, Maine, our sacred petroglyphs, those carvings and rock that were put there thousands of years ago, are now being put underwater by the rising seas. These losses have been slow and multi-generational. We have narrowed our spiritual palettes and our physical palettes to take what we have. But the stories, the old stories that still contain a lot of these elements, hold on to the traditional. For example, our ceremonies and language still include the caribou, even though they don't live here anymore. Similarly, we know the petroglyphs still exist, but now they're underwater. The change is in how we acknowledge them. The other epigraph is from the French philosopher Simone Weil. Quote, Attention is prayer. I think that one of the reasons why we have such a hard time addressing climate change has to do with the fact that we're still kind of searching for the language to talk about it, to make its impact felt. And I also think that the stories we tell can also help guide us towards different futures. Like we've gotten really caught up in apocalyptic storytelling around climate change. And in many ways, I think that kind of storytelling robs us from the possibility of being transformed and not only for the worst, not just a disaster multiplier, but an opportunity multiplier. There will still be incredible loss ahead of us. I am not at all suggesting there won't be, but I think the stories that we tell have the power and potential to shape the future that we want to inhabit. And so the search for language repeatedly carries me back to people who know more about navigating tremendous transformation, environmental transformation than the average Joe Schmo. So I think that's kind of how both of those get to be in the book is sort of the bell that struck at the beginning of the exercise. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been a really wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking so much time with my work. I really appreciate it. That was Elizabeth Rush, author of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Elizabeth's working on her next book. It's about motherhood and Antarctica's diminishing glaciers. This episode was produced, written, and mixed by me, Justine Paradise, with help from Felix Poon. It was edited by Rebecca Lavoie, with help from Felix Poon, Taylor Quimby, and Jessica Hunt. Our executive producer is Rebecca Lavoie. Music in this episode came from Chris Zabriskie and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. This is a member and listener-supported podcast. If you listen to Outside In and you're able to donate to help us keep making it, 
please visit OutsideInRadio.org and click Donate. And thank you. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox, There are new episodes out every Thursday, so subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.